Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to the Infatuation Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a brand new book that should be available pretty much everywhere now. It's called The Fetishist. Uh, the book was actually written about 10 years ago by Catherine Min. Unfortunately, Catherine passed away in 2019 before it was published. But through the work of family and colleagues, the book has now been posthumously published and is available for you to read. And one of the people who made sure that this book got out into the world is Catherine's daughter, Kayla Min Andrews, who is a writer herself and joins us today. Welcome to the show, Kayla. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And I think you're on book tour right now, but uh, where are you calling in from? That's right. So right now I'm in New Orleans, which is where I live. Um, but I had two events on the East Coast and tomorrow is the event in New Orleans. And then uh, and then I'm headed out on the road again to the West Coast for some more bookstore events. Great. Yeah, we'll plug that in a minute. So anyone on the West Coast, uh, get ready to write down some dates and times. We're going to tell you about uh, Kayla's book tour. Uh, you know, I've never been to New Orleans, but I've heard, of course, legendary things about it. Do, do you love living down there? I love living here. Yes, I've lived here, um, gosh, like 14 years now. Oh. And um, yeah, it feels like home. It's it's It was sort of a surprise to discover that it, it felt like home. But um, yeah, it's a city that kind of keeps challenging me, keeps me growing and kind of uh -huh. forces me to get outside of my own head. So I really like it for that. And the winters are a little nicer than New Hampshire, yeah? Oh, God, yes. Yes, I do not miss a New Hampshire winter. <laughs> All right. And we like to greet our guests in the Asian way. So let's see, you're you're a little later than me on the on your time. But uh, we greet our guests in the Asian way by asking, have you eaten yet? <laughs> yes, thanks for asking. Um, I had some, just some salmon and salad uh, about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> All right, good. We like our guests on a full stomach. We don't want you thinking about food or anything. Though food is a big part of this book. There's a little bit of uh, uh, delicious scenes described in this book, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, let's talk. Uh, could we talk about your mom's background a little bit? Sure. So uh, Korean descent. Yes. But born here in the States? Born in the States. Yeah. Um, her parents came over for college um, right after okay. the Korean War. Yeah. Oh, okay. Do you, do you know much about her childhood? Did you ever talk much about that when you were growing up? Yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting. I was thinking that we both grew up in small towns where there were hardly any other Asians around. It just <laughs> turned out that way. So, you know, she grew up in upstate New York. Um, but yeah, it was like just virtually everyone around her was white. Um, so not a lot of Korean community. Um, yeah, small town. And, if, and, you know, at that time, not a lot of representation, too. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. Does she always want to be a writer? Is that something that you guys have talked about? Yes, that that's definitely like family lore. Um, she knew from age five, you know, she just oh, always wow. knew somehow. And um, she she used to like tell a lot of colorful lies as a child, like when she was, you know, <laughs> five, six years old. Um, uh -huh. So that was a sign, you know, that's that, that's often a sign that someone is very imaginative and um, creative, yeah. able to invent their own <laughs> their own worlds. Yeah. And so she was she was always writing as a kid growing up. So I'm sure that was really popular with her Korean immigrant parents. <laughs> <laughs> right. So her dad was a scientist. Um, uh -huh. Her mom worked in banking for a while. So, yeah, um, as I understand it, they just they heard her say, I want to be a fiction writer. And they said journalism. <laughs> uh, OK, um, OK. And, and really encouraged her to. And she did end up getting a 
a master's in journalism from Columbia. So they very much, her parents very much encouraged her like, oh, you want to write? Like journalism, journalism. And it's actually <laughs> funny now. Jobs, yeah. <laughs> right. Back then that was like a, you know, a solid career choice. That was a way that you could have like a stable living. And um, so, yeah, so she, she did do journalism and that was always kind of how she, you know, could support herself and stuff like that while she was writing fiction. Yeah. Yeah. So went to Amherst mm -hmm. where I think she met your dad there, right. Roy Andrews. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about their relationship maybe a little bit later. I went to grad school and, and, but fiction was her first love, right? For fiction was really her true love. Yes. And she became a professor, a professor in New Hampshire and started publishing in journals and other literary magazines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Her first publication was in the late 80s and then um, just steadily publishing in literary journals throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And um, for most of my childhood, yeah, she was working at a university in New Hampshire, but she wasn't a professor. She kind of had a staff position um, working for the alumni magazine, like as a journalist. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so I really saw her like have a day job and like, you know, keep thinking of herself as a writer, but not always getting that external validation, at least from, from her, her job. And so the, she was able to teach adjunct a little bit um, in New Hampshire, but then it was really after her debut novel was published, Secondhand World. Um, and that was when I was in college that she got a, a full professorship job um, in North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So she published his first novel, 2006, uh, was a finalist for the Penn Bingham Award or yeah. Penn Bingham Prize. Mm -hmm. that's, that's for debut novels. So I guess it got a little buzz. People liked it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like I, I need to read it. It's someone, you know, I grew up in the 70s as well. So it's about a, a girl who grows up in the 70s. Yes. Sex, drug and sex, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, sounds great. Sounds great. <laughs> Um, and then so she was writing her second novel, which we're going to talk about, of course, in a minute, uh, somewhere around 2014 was 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 pretty much was pretty much done with it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very abrupt, um, you know, so when she got diagnosed with terminal cancer in March 2014, she says it was in the oncologist's office. She came to this decision, which is, OK, my time's limited because um, she had been polishing the fetishist at that point it had you know mm. it was like had a complete draft and it was in good shape but as soon as she found out her time was going to be very limited she wanted to create new art and the way she phrased it is like i abandoned that novel like she just abandoned mm. this thing mm. that was really close you know but it's like she didn't want to spend her remaining time um polishing and promoting it she wanted to spend her remaining time creating new new writing so she she shifted her focus and wrote nonfiction personal essays um, starting in mm. 2014. So yeah, that was the last time she she touched uh, her manuscript oh, of wow. The Fetishist. Wow. All right. And then let's, uh, before we get into The Fetishist, which we will in a second, let's talk about you <laughs> for a second. <laughs> sure. So you were born into a family that uh, obviously supported your writing. Did you know you wanted to be a writer when you were six? No. You know, it's interesting. I was it was always around me, but um yeah, I mean, and I and I wrote, you know, I did some writing as a kid and kind of scribbled uh -huh. in notebooks, but I think I yeah, no, it wasn't like this is what I want to do, you know, for my career or I think when I was younger I, I thought like I want to be a great lawyer and then I want to become a Supreme Court justice or you know, like um mm -hmm. I I did I didn't go around since age 6 saying that I wanted to be a writer. No. <laughs> But some, somewhere the, the, the switch flipped 
What, was this something that your mom and, and you bonded over a lot over, over the years as you were kind of learning how to become a writer in your own right? Or is this something that you would throw back and forth as a, as a mentor-mentee relationship a little bit? You know, it's weird to say, but like not so much um, when I was growing up, you know, like I was writing, but then I was sort of not thinking that that was what I wanted to do. And, and like sometimes I'd show her my writing and sometimes I wouldn't. And then, you know, probably sometimes I felt funny, like, Oh, mm. I, I don't know. Like, I need to figure this out for myself or I don't want to be, <laughs> okay. you know, like, I don't want to be asking my mom, who's already a very established writer to like, give me feedback. So I kind of, yeah, it was a little bit like prickly or or like it wasn't always, it wasn't, I don't know. We were always reading books and talking about books and, and reading her drafts together. Um, uh-huh. But it wasn't so much like I was becoming a writer. That's not how I necessarily thought of it. Um, like, yeah, I really only became a writer after she died um, in earnest, oh. you know, like as my uh-huh. vocation and my career. Hmm. hmm. Do, do you remember the first time you read The Fetishist? Um, so she, when she was writing it, uh, she was sending me chapters. Okay. Like as she was writing them. So, um, yeah, I remember reading like chapters and pieces and um, and it wasn't in the order that it appears in the book. Like Okay. Um, yeah, it was, she would kind of follow a certain character for a while or, you know, so it was like I got to know the characters and I got a sense of, of the plot, but it wasn't, there's so much skill in the way it's arranged because there's actually in the, you know, the, so I remember when I read it as a novel, the way she had put it all together, but that was actually after she died um, that I, that I dug up the, the like the complete, mm. you know, front to end um, manuscript. That, so that was two years after. And so I do remember, yeah, reading that and being like, wow, because I knew the characters, I knew the basic plot and the themes, but then to see the way it was spliced with like mostly pretty short chapters and very propulsive, suspenseful uh-huh. and jumping around uh-huh. in time, you know, all of that um, I discovered after, after she died. Yeah. And you, and you just knew that this had, well, I think it was a combination, right? Between you and your stepdad and other people who had read it just knew that this had to be published. Just, it was so, so good. It's too good not to be published. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I read a, a chapter of it um, for a small audience for a McDowell event celebrating mom mm-hmm. and got such amazing feedback from the audience and, and um, people saying they felt seen by it, especially, like, women, Asian women saying, like, I felt so seen or, like, this is articulating things that I've felt my whole life but never been able to express or, like, just the amount of feedback and people were like, so when can I read the whole novel? And yeah, it was, you know, sometimes it takes that kind of external spark to be like, Oh, right. Of course. Like let's pursue this. Let's see. Yeah. But it wasn't something that had occurred to us um, until then. So that was, yeah. Two years after she died. Okay. And, and one of the people there was Kathy Park Hong. Yes. Yes. Kathy Park Hong um, was at that McDowell event. And also she was friends with mom and they had overlapped mm-hmm. at a, an arts residency called Yado, um, where she heard mom read a chapter of uh, the novel in progress that she was writing at the time. So I believe that was in 2009. Um, so yeah, so she had heard mom read a piece of of The Fetishist way back when, when she was working on it. And, um, and it had stuck in her mind. And so then she was at the McDowell event and heard me read from it. And yeah, she's the one who, who ended up helping connect us to the publishing world. Yeah. And, and she wrote the introduction. Uh, and I think she's coming to San Francisco with you. You're going to do yes. a little Q&A that's with her. Right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's going to be cool. No, she's great, too. Uh, minor Feelings, right? Kathy Park Hong. Yes. Yeah. Amazing author herself. 
Okay, so here we are, 2024. Can you believe it? Almost, <laughs> you know, like like you said, she, your mom probably started writing this in the 0809 era, mm-hmm. and it just has kind of been living in text, but not in the world. But now it's out. That's How right. are you feeling about it? You uh, you having a good time uh, being part of this? Yeah, it's it's been really amazing, like mind blowing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just to know that her work's out there, you know, in the world and people are reading it and people are enjoying it and, and it's having an impact. And then also like talking into the fact that there's interest and that people want to hear about her, her work, mm-hmm. her life, and even like sharing our relationship with people. It's been really profound and um, yeah, kind of exhilarating and sometimes scary, but but ultimately like really, really beautiful experience. Yeah. I, I would think I would the word I would say is honoring, you know, like just very mm-hmm. honoring to her memory and and her work, you know, her creativity and her art, you know, her life. Yeah. All right, so let's get into this a little bit. We're not we'll we'll spoil we won't spoil it in this part. We'll warn everyone out there. <laughs> so the fetishist, very uh, provocative title. Um, I love Kathy Park Hong's uh, description of it in the forward. She kind of describes it as a reframing of Lolita from the perspective of an Asian fetishist. <laughs> Do you want to give us a quick, like non-spoiler description of the book? Sure. So yeah, there's um, kind of three musicians at the heart of the story. Um, one is a young Japanese American punk rocker in her twenties. Mm-hmm. And she wants to get revenge on the man who she holds responsible for her mother's death, an ex-lover of her mother's. Um, that man is a classical violinist, and um, he's the titular fetishist, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. a white a white man um, who seems to only date Asian women. And um, yeah, and then there's kind of the love of his life. Her name is Alma, a Korean-American cello soloist who is struggling with terminal illness. And so there's some suspense whether... whether the man will be able to reconnect with Alma before she dies or whether the, the young punk rocker will get her revenge <laughs> on Daniel first. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a, a revenge. It's, would you say it's a little bit of a love story? Like we see a love oh, story yeah. in the middle of it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's many things. It's, yeah. It doesn't really fit one genre. It's sort of a literary page turner thriller love story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know how your mom came up with the idea for this? So I know that um, very early on, perhaps the initial idea was when she heard that there there's such a thing as a, there's a job of um, a musician who goes and plays in hospice centers and pl- like oh. plays for the dying. Um, mm-hmm. So when she heard about this job, the idea of musicians who go in and play for the dying and, you know, and their families that, to kind of give them solace, she was really struck by this, this job. And yeah, and so and kind of got her thinking about about that and and then and then classical music happens to be a world where there's lots of um asian women and then got her thinking about that and um Mm -hmm. i think that was an early seed yes okay all right well i think that's about as far as we can go without spoiling it so uh there's so much music in this book i usually play a song to kind of warn people to get away from their devices can you think of a song we should play yeah (laughs) So I was thinking we could go punk rock. 
because you know there's, yeah. there's there's both strains in, in the book but i was thinking punk rock could be fun and um the song that kyoko is listening to in the opening scene is called people ain't no good by the cramps Okay, my, yeah, the cramps, thought. yeah, <laughs> classic. All right, so everyone, we're going to listen to a little bit of the cramps, and if you're still around when the song is over, that means you're willing to get spoiled. <laughs> Okay, so I usually like starting by talking about characters. Did you? Did you? Ra- would you rather talk about the plot first or characters first? Oh, let's go with characters. Okay, yeah, I, I think you kind of have to in, in this in this book a little bit. So let's go ahead and jump jump into the t- title character himself, uh, Daniel Carmody, DK, or uh, Rice King. We call him Asian fetishist. Uh, he was a prodigy when it came to violin, learned at a young age. And I think they, I think your mom describes him as tall, good looking. How else would you describe him? Oh, I think she says he has the hair of a poet. Okay. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's the kind of hair women seem to like, like, like disheveled okay. pl- and plentiful. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and talented and charming. Um, what, what do you think? Now, Okay, so he's he's the fetishist, which is a negative connotation, but your mom wrote him in such a way that I think he is he is likable in some ways. You know, you could see why people like him. Yeah, I think it's um, you know, it's a provocative title, but I hope it doesn't make people assume that the point is just to skewer this man, uh, because that's sure. not the point at all. And I think mm-hmm. it's like um, that was such mom's worldview is just like seeing the messy humanity of everybody but not it's not about like villains or you know condemning or judging it's kind of just like we're all messy humans out there flawed and damaged and kind of doing our best and so yeah yeah Yeah. you see that with him and i think i remember correctly he he didn't ever think of himself as an asian fetishist like some like alma had to point it out to him i think at one point yeah 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 so that's kind of interesting and I guess I guess we'll talk about the elephant in the room a little bit. So um, there's kind of an interesting line, I think, between having what we, people call yellow fever or being a fetishist and just liking people that are a certain way. You know, like what what do you think the line is between being a fetishist and just having a preference? Yeah, I mean, I think you got to read the book, honestly. Like the book <laughs> says more elo- eloquently than I could. Um, but they talk uh-huh. about that. And, and I, th- I think Daniel uses the word preference. Like, well, it's just preference. And she's like, uh-huh. no, it's it's about power. It's about colonialism, imperialism. Like there's all this history. Like, you sure. know, it's not devoid of, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I don't feel like it's my place to define exactly. But I, I, I do think it's a fascinating thing because you can't mm-hmm. define it. You can't define it perfectly. and And it's like... It's a feeling, you know, it's like if something feels off or feel if you feel uh-huh. um, like you're not being fully seen as fully individual, you know, but it's, it's yeah, not you can't just. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating because it's a little bit elusive as a concept. Yeah, no, fair enough. And and in in Daniel's defense, I totally get it. You know, I, I think Asian women are great. <laughs> I, I I could see why someone, you know, like I've always dated, I happen to be Asian, but I've always dated and found Asian women to be the most attractive. So I, I get it. It's totally understandable. But I guess 
if you're not of that race, it looks a little red flaggy. <laughs> if that's all you, if that's all the only type of women that you like, but uh, there's a scene that it's really kind of it came out of nowhere, and it's one of those ones where it's the time jump, where it flashes back to where I think Daniel's like twelve, and he's like the the kid. He's shorter than everyone, smaller than everyone at this band camp or orchestra camp, and who. Who points it out? Does someone point it out that this is where it all started, that he had kind of an interest in a, a strange curiosity? It wasn't romantic yet at that age, but he just was fascinated by this young Asian girl, probably 11 or 12 years old herself, who played violin. That was an interesting scene. What, what did you think of that scene? Yeah, yeah, this is fascinating. So this is actually the last chapter of the book, like the final, oh, yeah. like the book ends with this uh, flashback to when Daniel yeah. was 12, which we haven't gotten throughout the whole novel. The whole novel is him as an adult. And so, um, so actually when I discussed, like when I was reading, yeah, when I first saw that mom had placed this piece of writing last, I was, mm. I was shocked. I was so surprised. I had read the piece of writing but I didn't know that she intended it as the last chapter and um uh-huh. and it kind of blew my mind I was like are are we sure about this like can you do that uh-huh. like ending on a <laughs> random like you know ending on a flashback when you've never had flashbacks throughout the novel um yeah it was really surprising to me and and that piece of writing is so vivid and because mm-hmm. it's a, the retainer he's very interested yeah. in her retainer and it's like just like to me very gross like very vivid yeah disgusting details about like saliva and you know the wet napkin and, and then the, yeah, the retainer yeah. <laughs> itself um <laughs> yeah but placing placing it last really puts a lot of focus on it and yeah it sort of implies that this this thing that happened early in his childhood made him like predisposed or something yes. to to notice <laughs> asian Let's women see. it's it's very provocative yeah yeah, yeah, no, it it definitely sticks with you. I I think it could be a short story. Just that one chapter by itself could be a short story. Totally, totally. And I'm pretty sure this is what she read that at Yado that Kathy Park Hong heard her read. Uh, um, and to me, this is a great like this is maybe the most of that kind of Lolita, like you know, kind of um like intense desire that's kind of frightening and unsavory and and strange. Forbidden, and, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Uh, hey, could I get you to read a little passage from the book? Sure. Yeah. There's so many good scenes. I'm curious what scene you're going to choose. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'd uh, try to go to the root of things. Um, this is a chapter. It falls in the middle of the novel, but it actually doesn't need any any setup. So I can just okay. give it to you here. Okay. Um, so I'll just read for a few minutes. Johnny Appleby had been the first senior to her freshman, clarinet to her cello. Backstage, he had leaned into her, his clarinetist's embouchure grazing her ear, tickling the tiny hairs of its inner channel. Oriental girls are so sexy, he had whispered, and walked away, never to utter another word to her again. But the damage had been done. Johnny Appleby had sown his seed impregnating her with his five-word pronouncement. Oriental girls are so sexy. Blush of pleasure at the implication. She, Alma Sunja Lee, flat-chested, twig-legged, scale-practicing daughter of greengrocers, was oriental, like a rug, and therefore she was... sexy? Was it true that all Asian girls were sexy? And even if it were true, what solace was there in being part of a throng, 
a teeming corridor of button-nosed, black-haired girls with sallow skin and narrow hips. If they were all sexy, then they were all the same. And if they were all the same, then in what sense was she, Alma Sunja Lee, ninth-grade cello prodigy, a distinct entity worthy of individual attention? And yet, the possibility had emerged from nowhere, from the hot clarinetist's breath of a boy she'd barely noticed, the possibility of sexy. And who cared, really, where it had come from? Alma, at 13, had been ready to hear the news. Alma ruefully congratulates herself now, from the other side of that life, reaches back with tenderness and knowing mockery to chuck her younger self under the chin. She could offer advice. Beware what you wish for, sister. Or solace. You'll have fun. But in the end, all she can do is nod her head to acknowledge the moment, retrospectively recognized and reinforced by repetition, when the promise of allure had first been offered at the cost of self-erasure and the twisted roots of racism had become so deeply embedded in desire that she could not dig them out, could not, in truth, distinguish them from the healthy roots. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that segues perfectly because we're going to talk about Alma next. <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, no, you did great picking the passage. All right, so Alma, Korean-American, I think she picked her own name, like she picked the Alma part of her name. Yes. Yeah, I'd love to tell that story. Um, so <laughs> she, she chose to name herself Alma after Alma Mahler, who, mm -hmm. so Alma Mahler was a composer herself, um, but then when she married Gustav Mahler, um, he basically said, okay, you're my wife now. Your job is to support my music career. You mm -hmm. will not compose anymore. And mm -hmm. she, and she did. Um, so Alma says in the novel that she chose this name for herself to remind herself um, not to do that and not to, she says, I wanted to remind myself not to marry a genius <laughs> because I'm the <laughs> yeah. artist. I'm the genius, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, she has a, de she definitely has a strength to her. Um, you know, we, we all love her. I think if you read this book, um, supremely talented, stunningly beautiful, strong-willed um maybe maybe the opposite of what some people think of when you think of a fetishist and their desire for an asian woman a lot of times i think they think of someone who's demure or you know submissive and almost not those things sounds like i mean though she's not. complete completely lovely but uh different um do you think your your mom has a little alma in her i know it's not biographical but Sure. Yeah. I mean, definitely a little bit. Um, I think, and we'll talk about Kyoko later, but I think she has some of both of them in her and there's kind of a duality there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they met in Italy. I think Daniel and Alma met in Italy. Side note, do you think your mom, I think she got a trip out of this, right? Do you think your yes. mom <laughs> set this book in Florence so she could do a little research on the bridges and the jewelry stores? Yes, it's very possible. I know it was a hardship for her, but in order to fully research the world of this novel, she had to go to Florence. She had to buy herself jewelry. It was necessary. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, for reality, right? You got you to gotta get into it. So, mm -hmm. You have to so eat they, the food, you know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, Alma and Daniel, I guess they're in their 20s when they meet. They're young. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, they're quite, late 20s. Quite yeah. young mm-hmm. and really taken with each other. But in a in a... In one of those situations where there's a clash, but it also is the height of their love as well. You know, they, yes. they butt heads. <laughs> yes, a lot of romantic tension and sexual tension. Yes, a lot of arguing, yeah. you know, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But they, but he, she does a number on Daniel, that's for sure. And she, she wins his heart and he proposes to her. But within days, uh, he's also having, concurrently, he's always, he's also having an affair with another musician named Emmy who maybe fits into a stereotype a little more. She's small, she's supportive, submissive, a little bit eager to please. And so we, we won't get into all the details, but there's a little bit of a love triangle that mucks everything up and they go their separate ways. So it was yeah. like, you you don't know this until halfway through the book, but you, you think that Daniel and Alma had this long, maybe even marriage, you know, long relationship, but you realize that that it it was a, a short but fiery relationship that just left a mark on both of them for life. You know? Yeah, and then she just she's so principled she will never take him back, right? Like mm-hmm. she decides like, oh, you cheated on me, it's over, and we will never we're never revisiting that. Even though like there's so much love between them, she's so principled, right? She won't she won't yeah. compromise on this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was I was rooting for her on this one. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so Emmy is another musician. She's actually married and has a daughter and just goes through a a bunch of tough times. And so she ends up dying. And her daughter, Kyoko, is in the present time in her 20s. And like you said, she she blames Daniel for a lot of bad things that happened in her life, especially her mom's death. And so this brings in of all things, a kidnapping plot. <laughs> and so, uh, Emmy, uh, sorry, Emmy's mm-hmm. daughter, Kyoko and her boyfriend, Cornelius are out for revenge and kidnapping. And they're probably the worst criminals ever <laughs> <laughs> as, as it should be, you know, like it'd be weird if she knew how to do a crime. So, right. but they're off and, and they're in a, in a punk rock band that ends up going viral for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting that this, your mom wrote this in 2000, early, you know, late 2000, or the aughts, the late aughts. (laughs) (laughs) But it does feel very current in a lot of ways, you know, the virality of YouTube and things like that. And there was a, there's kind of a spooky line that sends chills down your spine when you realize when it was written about how Asians bring diseases Mm-hmm. into the world that was like i was like wait mm-hmm. what year is this written in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah no totally before before covid wow. for sure yeah 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 so i felt i felt like it was really current i felt like it was really contemporary yeah did you feel that when you're reading it i did and then and then like um the editor and agent a lot of people said it felt ahead of its time um which mm. is fascinating considering it was actually written um in the past but mm-hmm. yeah i think just mom was prescient and um and kind of, she's always been writing about these issues, and so there's a way in which just that that authority comes through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we won't we won't get into the total plot here because it's it's a little bit of a twisty turny plot here at the end. But what do you what do you think your mom wanted us to take away from it when we read it? Do you think she had something that she was trying to tell us, or just that we make up our own mind? Yeah, I mean, probably probably make up your own mind, but you know maybe mm-hmm. something some just something about how we're all 
like I don't know the the humor of it. You know, there's so much humor in this novel, and so、yeah. it makes me think about kind of the absurdity of life and kind of embracing that, and just you know, feeling all the sadness, but also noticing all the, all the humor along the way. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's it, there's some humor in there that you don't expect, and then it just、mm-hmm. comes out. Yeah, and that was mom's personality was so like yeah, like a lot of kind of dark humor, gallows humor, and sort of appreciating the absurdity in the you know e- even in things that are very painful or or sad. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it came out to me. One thing I read was that you know it's easy to blame other people for things that happen to you, but in the end. Maybe no one's to blame, and it's just the way life goes, you know. And, yes, yeah, yeah. So, so that's really good. Do you do you feel like it's changed? So your mom, a little older than me, you know, maybe grew up in the '60s and '70s. Yeah. Do you think it's changed a lot or a little bit from your mom's generation to your generation in terms of the Asian fetishism or or just kind of how people see Asian women these days in America? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. There's a lot of changes that you can point to. Like representation has changed so much, so so、mm-hmm. so much, and that's powerful, you know.、Um, or even just yeah, seeing other Asian American authors on the shelves. Like when Mom was first starting out her writing career in the '80s,、uh, there were hardly any, you know, Asian American、yeah. novelists,、um, yeah, Korean American novelists, and so. So I do think that's changed a ton between her generation and mine, and even in my own lifetime. Like I remember, like from when I was a kid until now, it's so different just in terms of.、Um, and so, and I think that causes there to be there's so much more language in the culture now. I think for for、mm-hmm. being able to talk about these things, for being able、yeah. to, for, there's an interest. I think that, that maybe there wasn't before of just like, which is great, right? Like let's hear people talk about their experiences、yeah. and let's what's it like to be Asian American? Like just the fact that there's interest now、yeah. in the in the wider culture.、Um, Yeah, that's a big change,、um, but I don't think everything has changed. <laughs> you know. Sure, we're not there. Yeah, we're not there yet, <laughs> but it's changing.